I would like to welcome you to this special edition of the Guerrilla Project Management podcast. Today, I have the distinct pleasure to be speaking to one of my great project management teachers, Mr. Neil Witten. A few years ago, I attended Neil's popular and outstanding seminar, Neil Witten's No-Nonsense Advice for Successful Project, and read both of his uh, popular books, uh, No-Nonsense Advice for Successful Project and Let's Talk More, No-Nonsense Advice for Project Success, which are both from management concepts. The ideas I took from the seminar and Neil's two books had the greatest impact on how I manage projects. The leadership, mindset, ideas Neil teaches completely changed the way that I saw my role as a project manager and as a leader and how I started relating to my project teams and stakeholders. If you have the opportunity, I encourage you to read Neil's books and definitely attend his seminar. Links will be in the show notes. Neil Witten is a popular speaker, trainer, consultant, mentor, and best-selling author in the areas of leadership and soft skills, project management, and employee development. He has over 35 years of frontline leadership management and human resource experience. In his 23 years at IBM, Neil held both project leader and management positions. He managed the development of numerous software products, including operating systems, business and telecommunications applications, and special purpose programs and tools. For three years, he also managed and was responsible for providing independent assessment on dozens of projects for an assurance group. Neil is the president of Neil Witten Group, created shortly after leaving IBM in 1993. Neil, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Neil, I want to take this opportunity to talk to you about some of the core and powerful concepts that I took away from your seminar and your books that were about leadership tips for promoting project success. And the first concept that had the most impact on me was your idea that project managers and leaders must practice the mindset that it is not about the ability of those around you to lead, it is about your ability to lead regardless of that which is happening around you. I would be happy to talk about that. Leadership is a very big thing to me. I had a call recently from someone who's relatively prominent in the project management industry and he said he was putting together a presentation for companies to get them more inspired about project management. And he said he was going to the people that he believed were the thought leaders in the industry and getting their views so it would be the best. And he said, Neil, I view you to be one of those, so tell me what do you think is key in project management? And he gave me a list of things I could choose from to talk about in terms of where are we going and what's important. And he, he, it was process and te- uh, technology and tools, etc. And I told him, I said, you know, I don't think you're going to agree with me when I say what the number one issue is in project management. Uh, he said, no, Neil, I, I, I'm sure I would agree with you. And I said, well, it's leadership. It's lack of leadership. He said, well, you're right, Neil, I don't agree with you. That's, that's, that's old school. That's been around for 10, 15, 20 years. He said, uh, I want to know more about where do we need to go in terms of our tools and, and are we, our processes and, and our soft skills and whatever else it is we need to do. And I said, look, it, it, it's always about leadership. 
I have done hundreds of project reviews of projects that were in trouble. And when the dust settled and it was all over with, the problem was always the leadership. It was always that. And even though it's been a cliche that it's leadership, it really is leadership. And, and, and I gave them a bunch of examples, and I'm going to throw out one to you right now. I had a gentleman who had just finished a project, and uh, he came into my office, and uh, the project had failed. And it didn't mean it didn't ship. It wasn't delivered. It was. It was delivered late, over budget, and low quality. And so um, I asked him what went wrong. And right away he said to me two sentences that I hear hundreds of times a year, and they're wrong. They're incorrect. He said these two sentences. One, Neil, it was not my fault. And two, there was nothing I could do about it. Those of you listening, it is always your fault. If you work for me, it is always your fault, and there are always things you can do to fix it. You might not like your options, but as a leader, you need to think that way. Don't go blaming other people for things. Leaders don't blame other people. They're too busy solving their own problems. But before I could say anything to this gentleman, he went on to say, Neil, the problem was the vendor. And the vendor was halfway around the world and was in India. And the vendor had several deliverables to us, and each time they said they'd be on schedule and they'd be quality, but each time they were late and they were not quality. So as you can see, Neil, it wasn't my fault. There was nothing I can do about it. And so I then said to the gentleman, I said, look, I don't recall during this project you ever walking into my office requesting funding to go fly to India and turn this issue around. Whether you're there for a day, a week, or a month, I don't care but you need to address the issue. And his reply was, they don't want me over there messing around in their stuff. And I said to him, I don't care what they want. They signed a contract. You are my agent for success. And then I told him 10 words that listeners probably have heard before. They're 10 two-letter words. If it is to be, it is up to me. And I said to him, if it is to be, it is up to you to go make it so, to go make it happen. The number, the most cherished asset in a company, when I ask people this, most people get it wrong. They'll tell me it's profit, it's customer satisfaction, it's intellectual property, it's logo. They go on and on. It's none of those things. Those are all important. The most cherished asset is its leaders in a company. And it's not the people, it's the leaders because all people are not leaders. If you have a company that has mediocre leaders, even if it has the best people working for it, it will be a mediocre force in its industry. But if you have a company with the best leaders, even if it has mediocre people, it will be a formidable force in whatever industry it serves and those so-called mediocre people will rise to the occasion and be the best. It's always about leadership. This was definitely one of the most powerful concepts because like you said, Neil, before I took the seminar and I really understood this concept, I just didn't know that first I need to ask for what I need. Um, and it is okay to hear no, but what is not excusable is not asking for what I needed. And therefore, if the, like you said, when the dust settles, if I can look back 
and say, I could have asked for those things that I needed, but I didn't. That was, to me, different than blaming someone else. So th that, this is really a very, very important concept that changed the way that I look at my role and ties into this next concept, which is that project managers should define their roles and responsibilities and obtain agreement from, from their boss or management. All right. I'd like to talk about that. I want to go back just for a moment, though, and thank you for what you said. I want to give my definition of leadership. And it's very simple, and it relates to what you said. Leadership is not about the ability of those around you to lead. It's about your ability to lead despite that which is happening around you. In other words, Samad, I'm saying if I have a large organization working for me, and you come to me and you say, you know, Neil, I can't get anything done in this organization because you don't have any good leaders for me to work with. I will not talk to you about whether or not I have good leaders. What I will do is say, Samad, what are you doing despite your assertion that I don't have good leaders? In other words, I don't care if the world is crumbling around you. I want to know what are you doing despite that to, to promote your mission, to be successful, to lead your team across the finish line. But the item you just mentioned about defining your roles and responsibilities and getting agreement from your boss, I'll tell you why I, I am so passionate about this one. Uh, it's my assertion that most people don't know their job. Because if they did, they would behave differently in that job. So if someone listening here is not sure what their job is, I, I recommend you not ask your boss. Your boss should have already told you what it was, but if your boss hasn't, <clears throat> don't go there. What I would do instead is take one sheet of paper and write on it in high-level bulleted fashion, here's what you view your job to be. Then we'll walk into your boss's office and say, boss, this is what I view my job to be. Do you support me in this job? And it will allow you to negotiate from a position of strength what you want your job to be. It doesn't mean you're going to get your way all the time, but you are more likely going to define the job you want by doing that. The other concept that I learned is that project managers should routinely practice boldness to be consistently effective leaders. Yes. If you want to be a consistently effective leader, you have to be bold. And some people listening may be thinking, you know, I'm an introvert. I, I, I'm a little shy. I don't feel comfortable about being bold. I will tell you, if, if I had to classify myself as an introvert or an extrovert, I'm clearly an introvert. I like my downtime. I like my uh, alone time. I, I like to be, I live in the mountains of North Georgia. I like the serenity, the peacefulness. But I have face time with thousands of people a year, and I still love people a lot. Here's my point. You can be an introvert and rise to the occasion whenever you choose to, and that's exactly what I do. I will do what I need to do when I need to do it. If I have two people standing next to me, and they're both exactly identical in how we measure human beings in terms of um, uh, capability, in terms of knowledge, in terms of experience, in terms of wisdom. And it's impossible to find two people exactly identical. But let's say we just did, and here they are standing next to me. I've got one person who has an average level of boldness, and I have another person who has, that's the only difference between them, who is clearly bold. That's the only difference. The person who is bold will clearly outperform the person who is not. And not just at work but in life. That's the importance of boldness. 
it's important that you be bold. And by the way, I'm not saying be arrogant. I'm mm-hmm. not saying be um, um, a snooty or condescending or any of those type of things. I'm just talking about rising to the occasion, having a backbone and doing those things that are necessary to get a job done. The surprising thing for me, Neil, after the seminar, when I came back to my job and I started practicing this concept, I just was surprised of how much I could get away with. (laughs) I just didn't realize that I had put an invisible fence around me and about the boundaries beyond wish that I couldn't go. But I realized that actually when you talk one-on-one with leaders, they actually wish their project managers were more bold. They absolutely do wish that you were more bold. And, and again, I would say to all those listening, um, think about the moments that you have been bold in your life. Mm-hmm. Everybody's been bold, whether it's little bold, medium bold, big bold. And, <laughs> and I want you to savor those moments because what happened? In most cases, you were very proud of yourself. And you were surprised, just as you said, Samad, what you got away with. And you were surprised the uh, results of your your being bold. And that's how the world works. Another Mm -hmm. way of saying it, I suppose, is the squeaky wheel gets the oil if you want to go that route. But, But regardless of cliches, you have to be bold to make things happen in this world. Mm hmm Absolutely. Now, one other concept, which was very difficult for me to apply, but then it, it became very clear how easy it was once I tried it, is to treat all project members equally, whether they are clients, vendors, contractors, or company employees. And just to tell you um, an example of this is I used to think that vendors are somehow way outside of my, uh, re- the reach of my authority or responsibility. I also used to think that um, if I have a senior manager on my project, uh, but but he is putting on the hat of uh, a project team that somehow I need to, to treat them uh, carefully. But after the class or after the seminar, if anybody is working on my project, I somehow make this shift when I'm talking to them and I talk to them just like any other team member, regardless of what their normal role in the organization is, and that shifted everything. Well, Samad, uh you probably don't want me to say this in this interview, but I'm really proud of you. Oh, thank you. Because it's one thing for me to say some of these things and to plant these seeds for you, but you see, I don't get any credit. You're the one that gets the credit, and you went away and you made these things happen. Not everybody does that. So I give you a lot of credit. You're the kind of student I love to have because I don't like to waste my time in life. (laughs) I'm not a young guy anymore. I hope (laughs) I've got some more years in front of me. And time is very important to me, and I love helping people, but I don't want to work with people who don't care about being the best. Mm -hmm. But going back to treating all project members equally, this is a big issue, and I would argue with most project managers. And where I saw it come to light is when I was doing a project review many years ago, and the problem was the project manager was giving favoritism to the customer. Mm-hmm. The customer had a handful of people on the team. And the customer was suing the company that the project manager worked in because the project manager failed to achieve the date that was in the contract. Mm-hmm. And so the project manager goes to the executive of uh, the customer 
and says, why are you suing us? And he said, because you didn't fulfill the contract. And he said, yeah, but the reason why I didn't is because of your team. Your mm-hmm. team was always late in all their deliverables, and they had low quality, etc. And I know where my bread is buttered, so I would cut them a lot of slack. Mm-hmm. And so the customer executive said, well, no, you don't know where your bread is buttered, because that team from my company, the customer, is not who butters your bread. It's me, the executive, who signed the contract. Mm-hmm. He said, if I would have known that it was my team causing the problem, if you would have told me that, I would have fixed it. But you didn't tell me that. Mm-hmm. But, but I'm a big fan of when you have a team, everybody is treated the same, and they're held to the same accountability. And I'll give you another brief example. I'm walking into a meeting with a project manager that I'm mentoring. And uh, I'll call her Janet. And before we get to the meeting room, she says, by the way, Neil, there will be some contractors in the room. And Janet had a project of a couple hundred people. She said, there will be some contractors in this meeting. I said, okay. Right when we got to the doorway of the room, and there were about 20 people in the room, she puts her hand on my arm and she says and whispers, I will point out who the contractors are when we get in the room. Mm. And I pulled her outside the room and I said, Janet, I said, are these contractors part of your project? She said, yes. I said, you need them to be successful? She said, yes. I said, then don't tell me who they are because right. it doesn't matter. Because when I walk in that room, I'm going to treat everybody the same on that project and hold them just as accountable. And Samad, you said a moment ago, that includes management that chooses to be on your project. They have to be held to the same level of duty as anybody else on the project. Mm-hmm. And that's a big, big, big shift uh, because it takes a lot of confidence to be able to speak to someone uh, higher up, um, especially uh, someone with authority, and hold them accountable. And like you said, Neil, this was uh, a big thing that causes projects to to struggle. Um, And I think project managers practicing boldness will be very successful once they make this shift in their mind. It can make a big difference. And it goes along with this next concept where you say that project managers must inspect what they expect. Don't trust that things are progressing smoothly and will work out okay on their own. Plan it, measure it, and if necessary, mitigate it. And Neil, I want to say this um, about some of my earlier projects I used to work with different teams. So I will have, for example, a software development team, and they will create a little group that they want to do their own work processes, and the project manager is supposed to stay out of it. And basically, you're just supposed to get this status once in a while. What this shifted for me is is that I have every authority that I needed to go in there and inspect anything that that group does, regardless of how they think of themselves or how they organize themselves. If I'm responsible for them and they are part of my project, then I have every right to go and take a look at what they're doing, ask questions. And I see a lot of project managers, they get very shy or they get very scared to go and ask these teams that that tend to create processes around themselves. Well, everything you said, I I certainly agree with. And you don't want to be bashful about these things. You not only have the right as a leader of the team to inspect what you expect from others, to inspect what you expect from others, you have the duty to do that. Mm -hmm. And um, something that I tell people that makes 
some of them feel a little uncomfortable as I say, don't ever trust anybody on your team. Mm. And, you know, a lot of companies have this big thing about, oh, we got to trust each other. But I put the word trust in quotes because I don't mean it personally. I mean it from a business point of view. Mm-hmm. So if, um, Samad, if you and nine other people are on my team, I don't trust any of the ten of you. Uh, I like you, and I'm glad you're on my team, but instead of, quote, trusting you, what I want from you is a detailed plan. I want metrics so you can tell me where you are at any given point in that plan. If you get in trouble, I want a recovery plan, and I want metrics so we know we're fully recovered. And I think everybody listening to this has probably had an example of leading a project where there was somebody on the team that had a lot of experience, and uh, the project manager trusted that person to do what they said they were going to do. They didn't have a detailed plan. Uh, For whatever reason, they just gave that person a lot of bandwidth to do what they chose to do, and the person never got it done. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I would say to people listening, how many times does that have to happen to you before you finally get hit over the head with a two-by-four and realize that people are human? Some people you, can, you actually can trust, and they will get the job done, but others won't, and it's not because they're bad people, because they're just optimistic, other things happen. But if you want to be the best that you can be, if you want to build the best products, if you want to work in the best organization, if you want to provide the best services, this isn't an accident. This, you, have to do these, you have to do certain things deliberately to make that happen, and this is clearly one of those, and that is inspect what you expect from others. Neil, you also teach about how project managers must escalate issues that are in apparent impasse and that escalations are healthy and essential part of business. And before then, I used to think that by escalating, I somehow failed to solve the problem. I somehow I failed. It's, it's, it says something about me being unable to to resolve the problem. And 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 your your concept about escalation is completely different. Well, my concept about escalating is, first of all, escalation is a great business tool. Not a good business tool, a great business tool. Any executive, high up executive in a company listening to this tape right now, I would argue Samad would agree with everything I say. Because everything I talk about is all about business. It's all about being the best in business. That's a good thing. But getting back to escalating, A lot of people don't escalate as quickly as they should, or sometimes they don't escalate at all. Mm -hmm. And uh, reasons for not escalating could be many. For example, they they don't want to burn a bridge with somebody. They don't want somebody not to like them. They're afraid they're going to lose the escalation. There is no valid reason for not initiating the escalation. When two people try to work something out, but they can't, they sincerely tried, they need to then, within two work days, go to a higher authority, and that's an escalation, and help to get it resolved. Um, I'll bet everybody listening right now knows somebody that they work around that they believe if they escalated an issue over that person's head, that person would not like them and they would take it personally. Therefore, some people listening right now would fail to escalate because they don't want to get on the bad side of that person. Mm -hmm. I say it's not personal. 
It's never personal when you go to work. It's just business. Don't make it personal or take it personally. You do not want to harm the outcome of the business. Otherwise, people are not going to have their jobs, and you will not, no longer be competitive. So escalations are a very healthy form of business, and you want to pursue them when necessary. I still have these instances where I hesitate to escalate initially, and I'm always surprised of how things happen so quickly as soon as I escalate. And I just always ask myself, why did I wait so long? Because once you, once I escalated, things started happening. So that was a big uh, learning for me. And by the way, John, uh, one more thing. And when you do escalate, it doesn't mean you're going to win all the time. Right. Now, now you hope it's going to be a win-win. Both parties win. But if you lose, that's okay. Yes. That's good news in that at least now we can move forward. You, you, know, you, you uh, have your lumps, you take your lumps, and you learn and grow from it and rise to the occasion and you move on. Absolutely. And the big thing for me, Neil, is that once you escalate, then detach yourself from the outcome because you're done. Your job is done. Uh, the, and, and respect those you escalated to because you can't escalate and then want them to do exactly a specific course of action. So show them respect by even if they decide on a course of action that is not what you desire, just still respect them and move on. Pick yourself up. Maybe it's not something that you like. But at the end of the day, you've done your job. Well said. So... That all has to do with this core concept, this next core concept, which is leaders fail because they are too soft. This was a tough one. Yeah. Um, if you look at leaders in the public and you don't see them being as effective as they should be, it is because they are too soft. They, they don't have, uh, it goes back to the backbone to make the right decisions. I'll tell you what this is really all about. Again, most people listening, if I were to ask for hands to be raised, <clears throat> how many of you believe that you tend to be too soft most of the time? Mm -hmm. I have found most people raise their hands, and they're, they're right, because most people are too soft. Not everybody, but most. Being too soft is not a good thing. I don't want you to be too hard either, but it's not a good thing. i tell you what it comes down to is one word, and this word defines a person's success in how they treat this situation. And the word is conflict, how you deal with conflict. If you run from conflict on a regular basis, you're never going to be the best in whatever you do. But it comes down to conflict. A lot of us are afraid of conflict, but if we stop to think about it, conflict isn't as bad as we first think it's going to be. 95% of conflict is relatively benign. For example, let's say... We have two people, uh, Tom and Jerry, and they're good friends at work, but they come into work today and they have to negotiate a conflict between them, an issue between them. Let's say Tom is known for being a tough negotiator. Well, you know, Jerry doesn't want to lose to Tom, even though it is his good friend, and so he's apprehensive. When he walks into the meeting with Tom, and let's say it's just the two of them, one of them will say something that might kind of uh, take the tension out of the air, maybe a little funny or whatever, and then they get down to negotiating. Before you know about it, before you know it, the negotiations are over. It's a win-win, and they're good buds again, and they go back doing their thing at work. That's how it usually turns out. We, we just think it's going to be far worse, like we're going to be embarrassed, we're going to lose, somebody's going to yell at us, 
And I don't know if that's left over when we were kids and we spilled the milk and maybe we thought we were going to get punished for it, mm-hmm. but we have to get rid of that. Conflict is a necessary part of life. I have, I have books to write still. I have dreams to pursue. I have things I want to accomplish, products to build, and I know I cannot build those things or do those things without conflict with another human being on this planet. Mm-hmm. And I don't like conflict. I don't like it as much as anybody else doesn't like it, but it's a necessary part of living life and achieving things, and you don't want to look at conflict as negative. You want to look at it as something essential that you have to go off and work with and resolve and move on. And speaking of conflict, it ties into this other concept, which is it's not about being liked. Exactly. Uh, you know, it's uh, integrity important we all have integrity and I define integrity as um, we we know the difference between right and wrong and it's doing the right thing all of us inherently know the difference between right and wrong and it's important we all have integrity and you're right it's not about being like it's about doing the right thing um, we, we all want to be liked and by the way if you really want to be liked guess what in most cases if you do the right thing it will follow you. Being like will follow you everywhere, everywhere you go. And this next one was really another mindset shift that happened after the um, seminar, and that is behave as if you own the business and your business is defined by your domain of responsibility. Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm very big on business. If, if I owned the PMBOK, PMBOK, the Project Management Body of Knowledge book from PMI, if I owned that manual, I would have stamped in big letters outside of it, it's all about business. It's mm-hmm. not about process and procedures. It's always about business. And if you put that hat on, suddenly your day gets a lot easier because you can actually make decisions easier. So when I say to people, when you go to work every day, do not look out for your company. Do not do that. Instead, I want you to look out for your own domain of responsibility. People think to me, gee, Neil, that's awfully selfish. That's not a good thing. No, it's a very good thing. And yes, it is selfish, but it's a good business selfish. If everyone in your company looked out for their domain of responsibility first, I guarantee your company would get better overnight. (laughs) It is a good thing, not a bad thing. Now, Let me give you an example. Let's say you own the company and you have 10 projects going on at any given time, and each is a different project manager running that project. So you have all 10 of those project managers in a room right now. One of the projects happens to be an especially important project, and that project is uh, going to bring in 30% of the revenues next year. And the other remaining nine projects are all equally weighted, and they will bring in whatever that is. I think it's probably about 8% of the revenue per project next year. So let's say the person who owns the, quote, most important project is you, Samad. Um, If I'm the big boss and all 10 of my project managers in the room, the question on the table is, 
what should I tell my other nine project managers? What should I tell them to do if Samad goes to any one or more than one of them and says, my project is in trouble, I need help from you? Here's what I would tell them. Now this is all related to mind your own business first. Don't look out for your company, look out for your domain of responsibility. What I would tell them is first of all, if anybody comes to you and requires up to two hours of your time or anybody on your team, you always say yes. Because as a professional, you can't tell me you can't find two hours to help somebody else. Mm -hmm. But if somebody comes to you asking for your help, either you personally, Samad, or somebody on your team, and it's a substantial amount of time. Let's say uh, you have a person on your team named Dolores, and she's, got, uh, she's, she wants, she's, she's being asked to give up three weeks of her time to help somebody else out. If that three weeks is not available to you to give her up, you have to say no. Even though you think you're doing the right thing for the company, I want you to say no because it's the wrong thing for your project. I need you to look after your project. But what you also would say is to the person, in this case it's you, Samad, uh, that's asking for the help, you say, I would, uh, the person says to you, Samad, look, I can't give you Dolores. I, I'm sorry. I wish I could help you, but if I do, I'll miss my own commitments, and I don't have the authority to make the decision to miss my own commitments. However, how about you and me walk into Neil's office, and if he chooses to sacrifice my project to help yours, then that's a business decision he can make, but I can't make that decision. So it goes back to it's very important when you go to work every day, look out for your project because if you don't, nobody else is. And some of you listening are probably picking up on where I'm going with this, in the example that I used, it's possible to lose 70% of the revenues in order to fix 30% of the revenue problem. So you could fix one project and make it successful at the expense of all these other nine projects. You don't want to do that. And in the example you gave, Neil, that also tied into the concept that escalation is a good business because in that particular situation, uh, the two project managers would escalate and would get a resolution, and that's good business. Well said. And here's an example where escalation's not personal. No one's mad at each other. It's just a matter of trying to figure out what's the right business thing to do at a higher level. Neil, when we start in our careers as project managers, it is really hard to find information such as what we're talking about now unless you go to one of your seminars or read one of your books. and you encourage project managers to have a mentor. Why is that so important? Well, I never had a mentor, mentor growing up uh, and uh, in the business world. I certainly had people around me that I respected, and I'd occasionally ask them for advice. But a, a true mentor is somebody that you can trust. Whatever you share with them will not, will not harm your performance review, your salary increases, your job opportunities. So um, if you want to be the best, there's no better way to getting there than having a mentor. There's no better way to learning a craft by having a mentor. I mentor about a dozen people at any given point in time. I've done this since I left uh, um, IBM, took early retirement from IBM in 1993. 
I mentor on average a dozen people from as many different companies. And I will tell you, Samad, these people grow far faster than I ever did. Mm-hmm. And they, they learn, and they don't have to make all the mistakes. They can learn from the mistakes that I've made or the mistakes that I've seen others make because I can help them before they get too far with it. But having a mentor is somebody who is a subject matter expert in something that you specifically want to be mentored on and improve, and that is the best way to learn a craft. Some people say, no, Neil, the best way is just on-the-job training, just school of hard knocks. That is a terrible way because what will happen is you will learn things to do and you will learn them wrong, and you will think it's right because everybody around you does it the same way. So anyway, that mentor is that person who can bring their objectivity and their experiences to bear to help you specifically. The next concept is that project managers should adopt the benevolent dictatorship leadership style because it is far more effective than alternative styles. And this is going to be very hard for a lot of people to understand, and I I appreciate uh, you helping them understand why this is so important. (laughs) You're right. I don't doubt that there's going to be a listener or two who's not going to buy into this. Um, But that's not my problem. If you want to be the best, you're going to want to listen to what I'm going to say here because it really does work. Let me let me put it let me framework it this way. Samad, let's say you are a project manager and you work for me. And your project is midway. And you're in my office and we're just talking about your project. It's just a informal just hey how's it going? What's going on? and you and I discover a serious problem on your project. And we're both surprised we didn't see it before. Now, I'm not mad about it. I don't get mad. This is business. It's not personal. And I say to you, Samad, I'd like you to go off and figure out what you're going to do about that problem, and will you let me know? And you say, well, of course I will. So you go off and you call a meeting of your team, and you say to your team, "Um, look, we've got a problem. Here's what it is. What do you think we ought to do about it? So the first person says, well, Samad, I think we ought to do this. And that gets labeled option A. The next person says, "Ah, I can't live with that. I think we ought to do option B, and option B is defined. Everybody else on your team, Samad, agrees that option A is the best approach. But they all say they can live with option B. Even though option A is the best, they can live with B because there's one person who can't live with A, and that's the person who suggested B. So you then, and now this is called consensus, you then decide to take the consensus route. You come back in my office and you give me option B. And what you start out by saying is, you say, boss, we have a solution. As soon as you say the word, we have a solution, you've lost me because I'm going to kick you out of my office and I'm going to say, Samad, you come back when you have a solution. I don't know how to hold we accountable for anything, but I know how to hold you accountable. I want you to come in my office and say, I have a solution. Now, people listening are going to say, well, wait a minute now, Neil. Samad's just trying to give credit to his team. They helped him come up with a solution. And I would say, well, if he's a good leader, that's exactly what he should do, is have the team help him come up with the right solution. But when he walks into my office, I want him to believe in that solution and say, I have a solution. 
Now, if Samad has time, and I have time, to talk about um, who came up with the idea on the team and who refined it, etc., I'm not opposed to that. But in the business world, we don't have time to go to that level of detail. So anyway, I kick you out of the office. You go back to your team. You call a meeting again. And you say, you know, Neil doesn't like consensus. And you scratch your head a little bit. And you say, let's do it again. So you decide to use democracy. It's a vote. Democracy works for some countries. But it does not work in business. And it does not work on a project. Because when people vote, they vote from their own domain perspective. What's in it for me? And that's OK in a democracy. But it's not okay in a business because I don't care what each person gets out of the vote. I care what's the right business decision. So it's not about individuals. It's about the business. So democracy won't work. And there's another leadership style called micromanaging. That's a terrible style because nobody feels passion. It's always the boss's commitment and not their commitment. So micromanaging won't work. The best form of leadership that I have ever encountered is what I call benevolent dictatorship. And this is how it works. It's when Samad goes back to his team, calls it together, and he says, I have a problem. I need your help. Now the team is going to be flattered that you're calling upon them because they have skills and you recognize that. And now you sit there and you listen to what they have to say because you recognize that collectively they are likely smarter than you are as an individual. And when you think you know the right answer, there's only one vote, and it's you, Samad. Now here's the key I want everybody to pick up on. I don't want you to just say, this is the way we're going to do it. I want you to leave the perception that the team reached a consensus to your best of your ability. And you may say, well, how do you do that? And I would say, well, everybody listening has skills to do it. Here's an example. Let's say, uh, Samad, your team is made up of five people. And one person on the team, um, and you're listening. You're brain they're all brainstorming how to fix this problem that you brought on the table. And this one person says something that gives you an aha moment. And you think, wow, uh, gee, uh, uh, Tim, that's, a, that's an interesting idea. I, I hadn't thought about that approach. What you just did is you gave credibility to that approach. And now other people are starting to give more attention to it. And that's how you can move a discussion in a meeting. You're in a position of power as being the project manager, as being the leader of the team. And you can move that meeting around the room. The objective for doing it is to leave the impression, the perception that they all reached a consensus and it wasn't you and your idea. That's what you really want to walk away with because it's not about who gets the credit. By the way, in this way, in this example, Tim, if anybody should give the credit, it should probably should be Tim because he's the one that first uh, floated a, an interesting idea. At any rate, you come back in my office and you say, Neil, I have a solution. When you are running a team, if it takes 10 minutes to reach a consensus in solving a problem, it will likely take 
15 minutes to reach the best business solution. That's what I want people to do who are listening. I want the best business decision. And that's where you feel personally accountable now when you walk out of that meeting believing in that solution. Because when you walk into my office, I'm going to ask you 100 questions from one way to the other, and you better have the answers and have the passion that you believe in where you're going with the solution. And the surprising thing for me, Neil, is that once I practice this concept, I am always surprised of how many people later down the road come back to me and thank me for being decisive in, the, in a particular meeting and making a decision. Even those who actually disagreed with the final decision, because I found that teams crave for leaders that actually can take a stand and move on. They just teams just are tired of indecisive leaders. Well said. Uh, and, and to play that a little bit more, I don't know if this is a human instinct, or we're we're born with it, or or we develop it. It's social or what? But I have found that human beings want to be led. Mm-hmm. They want a leader. Even if they are leaders themselves, they still want a leader, somebody that they know is looking out for them and their best interests. And you're right. When you work on a team and there's a leader of that team and that person clearly takes that seriously and is a good leader, a good, strong leader, People want to be working under that person's direction the next time and the time after that as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The other concept, Neil, is the project managers must manage daily to their top priorities. Yeah, this is uh, this is a really key one. Uh, if 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 I could reach out to the listeners right now and randomly pick one and ask the person listening, what are your top three priorities right now in your business day? And if that person could not tell me what they are within three snaps of a finger, then I'm going to conclude that that is not a very competent leader. And that person may come back and say, well, wait, wait, Neil. How dare you judge me by so little information? I am a good leader, I think. Just give me a little bit of time, and I'll come up with what my top three priorities are. And I would say it again. If you can't come up with them in three snaps of a finger, you're not a very good leader because it tells me you're not managing to those top three priorities. You're managing instead to the minutia, the noise, the interruptions that come your way every single day. And that's not what makes you a good leader. Here's an example. Everybody listening, when they start their business day, should have a to-do list in front of them. Some of them may do, uh, and most people have that anyway. I don't have to suggest doing it. Most people do it. Some people do what I do. I put it together the night before because I'm already active in what's going on during the day, and I know what I want to do tomorrow, and I can hit the road running. So let's say, but whether you do it the night before or not, I don't care. But when you start your day, take five or ten uh, ten minutes of quiet time. Think about what you want to accomplish, what's on your to-do list, and let's say there are ten items on your to-do list. Most people listening are going to have more than 10, but I'm just going to use 10 as a simple number to make my point. You look at that 10 and you define your top three priorities in your bottom seven. At the end of the day, when you drive home from work, if you have not touched your top three, but you managed to cross off your bottom seven, 
do not feel good about your accomplishments that day because you worked on the wrong things. And the question on the table is why do we tend to work on the bottom seven at the expense of the top three? And the answer is they're easier. We get instant satisfaction. We, 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 they're more fun. They don't take as much time. If instead, when you drive home from work, if you haven't touched your bottom seven, but you've made significant headway in solving one of the top three, then I would applaud you and say you should feel very good about what you accomplished that day. And you may say, but it sounds like, Neil, you, you don't care if I work on the bottom seven or not. And I'd say, I don't care. I don't care because your career is defined by your ability to solve your top three each day. It is not defined on solving the bottom seven. The contribution you make to your company, uh, the value you bring to your project is all predicated on your ability to solve your top three, not your bottom seven. If you have five minutes between meetings and you can knock off one of your bottom seven, I'd say go for it. That's cool. But if you have a half an hour between meetings, don't work on a bottom seven. <clears throat> um, something I did wrong uh, at IBM when I worked there for years and I was in management for over 10 years and was a project and program manager and other such things, I always carved out one hour on my calendar every day to work my bottom seven. I shouldn't have done that. If I can really find a full hour of free time, I should be focusing on what defines my career, and that's the top three. So all of those people listening, if you have more than one project, and most of you do, you might be thinking, well, what do I do, Neil? Do I walk into work every morning and identify my top three for each project? Let's say I have five projects. Yes, I want you to know your top three on each of those five projects. Well, Neil, then that means I've got 15 priorities. Is that what I need to work that day? No. Take that list of 15 and reduce it down to your top three. If you try to take on any more than that, it's going to be overpowering. You're not going to be effective. So you want to zero in on what you need to work on. Neil, you also teach and encourage project managers to apply culture training class at the start of new projects, which is a really unique concept that I've never heard anybody else teaches and changed the way that I think of the whole kickoff uh, process. Um, and, and you also are big on not only capturing the post-project reviews or lessons learned, but you also have insisted that project managers actually use that information at the start of every project. Tell me a little bit about that. I'd be happy to. There are three things that you just mentioned, and all three are things that I would mandate if people listening to me worked for me. And some people might think that I would mandate a lot of things if you work for me. And actually, it's the opposite, because I believe in the free will of free spirit. I want people to do their thing. But these three things I'd mandate, because without doing so, most companies and most organizations won't do them. So let's talk about them. The first one is when a project is over, you've got to do a review on that project. You've got to do a lessons learned. Assuming it's a substantial project, and you, you define substantial in your own company, I can't do that for you. It might be something that is a project that has a value of $100,000 or more to it, 
or has at least um, you know 2,000 people hours on it. I'm making this up. Uh, but when a project is over, you want to do lessons learned. And I have found that nowadays about 40 to 60% of people in my seminars will raise their hand and say, yeah, we do those, we do those lessons learned. The second thing you want to do is when you start a new project, you want to uh, ex examine the lessons learned from the most recent relevant projects and apply them to your new projects. Now that sounds like a no-brainer, but most people don't do that. Most people, when I ask people, how many of you in the audience work in an organization that mandates that you review these lessons learned and uh, put a plan in place to show how you're not going to have those same issues on your project, I only get like 5% or less of people raising their hands. Here's exactly how I would do that. I define it in my books. I would have a review board of three people. I call it a, new, uh, a uh, project review board. Mm -hmm. uh, three people, and they are, they are peers and they are project managers. They are not managers. They are project managers. And let's say those three people on the board um, uh, and you, Samad, are starting kicking off a new project. What would be mandatory is for you to go in front of the board and explain to them what you learned by reviewing the lessons learned of the projects preceding yours. And what you're going to do about those lessons so they don't happen on your watch, any of the problems. Um, and the review board has the power to ask you any kind of questions to make sure that you truly are learning. And if they don't think you fully learned and you're not going to be mitigating a lot of those problems, they do not approve you moving on to the next stage of your cycle, your, your project cycle. <clears throat> you've got to go back and you've got to fix that. So that's the second thing on mandate. It's not enough to do lessons learned. You also have to make sure that you're applying those lessons going forward. The third thing that I would do is when you kick off a project, you want to do a culture training class. Some people do this somewhat. Nobody does it um, other than my clients that I'm aware of as thorough as it needs to be done. In a kickoff meeting, I need everyone to be talking about how we're going to plan the project, how we're going to track it. I need to talk about how to escalate issues if I'm the project manager running this, how we're all going to escalate issues, uh, how to get along with each other, how to ask for help when you need it, uh, how, uh, what lessons we're going to um, apply from, from prior projects, uh, etc. We're going to talk about the things that allow us to bond with one another, and you'll know exactly what I expect from you and I know what you expect from me. This is what's rarely done on projects. And that's why I call it a culture training class, because you're defining the culture of the class. Now, it's interesting that today a lot of companies, a, a project now is worldwide. Um, and there are truly people of different nationalities uh, on that project. So, so you can see the value of a culture training class there. But I'm even saying if all of us are of the same ethnic group in the same country, uh, in the same town, and we all live on the same street in houses that look alike, when each of us walk into our house, the culture is still radically different in each house. 
and I don't care what your culture is when you go home, but I care what it is when you're at work with me and I'm running the project. So that's why we have to sit down together and decide how we're going to work together. So those are the three things that I would mandate. Neil, thank you so much for sharing those insights. What are some of the projects that you're working on right now? Well, I fortunately, knock on wood, stay pretty busy with public events as well as a number of private companies that uh, I work with. And I, what I'm currently doing, the thing taking up most of my time is I'm writing a, a new book, my, my seventh book. Oddly enough, it's not about project management, but it is about inspiring people helping them to pursue their dreams. And what I'm doing is interviewing people who are 65 years or older uh, and capturing their wisdom so I can pass it back down to the generations. And it's my assertion that in this particular case, this book is about America, and that I believe that we do not um, respect our elders as much as we should and listen to the lessons. And I want to help um, do my piece to try to improve that. So that's the book I'm working on right now. It's about 85%, 90% done. Where can people find out more about you and contact you? Probably the best way is my website. It's uh, neilwittengroup.com. And uh, publicly I show where I'm going to be, but it doesn't show where I am privately, of course. I have, a, as I say, I have a lot of clients privately. And they can see some of the latest articles that I've written. I've had a column in PM Network Magazine for over 10 years. And uh, PMI has given me permission to post those articles uh, so people can see those on the website as well. Neil, I want to thank you so much for your time that you spent with us. This has been a real honor and privilege to me. And I want to thank you for taking the time to share with my audience these powerful leadership insights that have made a difference in my life. Samad, let me, I, I've got to respond to something on this. And uh, first of all, I'm honored to be here. But, but I'm going to tell you the biggest reason why I'm honored to be here. I like helping people. And you are somebody who cares about helping other people. You don't have to do this. You're not getting anything out of this. You're not making any money off of this. And you care about passing knowledge about paying it forward, and I respect that a lot. And that's exactly why you got my attention, and I applaud you for that. So I am honored to be here for you in addition to all the listeners as well. Thank you, Neil, so much for that, those kind words. And again, if uh, our listeners have the opportunity, I highly recommend to read Neil's books and attend his seminar. Definitely attend his seminar, uh, and I will put the links in the uh, show notes. Again, I would love to hear your thoughts on these topics. Visit us at www.guerrillaprojectmanagement.com and leave your comments. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this edition of the Guerrilla Project Management Podcast. Thank you, Neil. Thank you.